Please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. Five hundred and four years ago, on this very day, October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, one of the greatest uh, moments out of the past one thousand years happened. Dear brother Martin Luther nailed the ninety five theses to the door in an act of protest against the Catholic Church who was preaching works theology, man-centered tactics with man-centered motives. It was an act of great boldness. It was an act of great courage. It was at that moment that the Protestant Reformation began It's a moment that for, for Martin Luther, it was risky. Risking his reputation. Risking his life. Risking his freedom. Risking his church. Risking his relationships, his family, things of that nature. But it is a moment that we can look back 504 years later, and, we, and, and those of us who, who are uh, Christians who, who, who follow the true gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, we, we can look back to 504 years later, we can say, thank you. Thank you, Martin Luther. You don't have to agree with every single thing that Martin Luther said or, or did to look back and say, Thank you for your courage and thank you for your boldness. But we owe a great deal to men like Martin Luther. And what's interesting with, about Martin Luther is what many don't know. Many, that's what many most of us think. We just think of Martin Luther as the dude who nailed it on the door. And if you read about his ministry, and if you read a lot of his books or read through some of his sermons, you'll see he was a man of just great boldness. But he was also funny. He was joyful. He was the life of the party. He found himself a wife, and they had a bunch of kids, and he discipled them, and he loved them, and he just gave his life to making Christ known where he was at to the nations. What you don't know about him is, is, is this, before he actually came to Christ, he was, a, he was a Catholic monk. And as is very common with the monks, they would start in the, in the morning and they would spend a brief amount of time in, in the confession booth with other priests, confessing of their sins from the day before. And in that booth, most of those priests, it would be just a few, a few short seconds, a few short minutes of confession, and they would leave and go on with their day. Martin Luther was known to spend hours and hours and hours every day in the confession booth confessing his sin. His sin was so very real to him. It was so weighty to him. And he just felt the deep condemnation of his sin upon his life. And, and he felt as there was, there was no way he could confess enough. There was, there was no way that he could do enough to make things right. He just constantly felt the burden of his sin and the wrath of God upon him. It got so intense that it's rumored to say that, that, that one of the priests went to Martin Luther and said, Martin, Martin, you're, you're, you're in here, and I'm paraphrasing here, Martin, you're coming in here every day and you're confessing these, these, these small, menial sins. Why don't you go out to the town and actually commit some, some great sins and come back in here? But I, you can't keep coming in here all day with these small, menial sins. Sins great and large weighed heavy on Martin Luther. And dear friends, it wasn't until he 
studied the word of God for himself and saw the goodness of the gospel, the mercy of God, free of charge, given to those who would trust in Christ, that he finally felt free. When he finally trusted Christ, when he finally tasted true salvation once and for all, he was free and his life was changed. No longer bogged down with condemnation, but joy. No longer held down by the bonds of legalism and, and works righteousness, but he tasted freedom once and for all. Freedom not to live for self, but freedom to live for Christ. Not sorrow and depression, but joy and gratitude. And this is what led to a man who would risk it all so that the world would know Christ as Savior. He experienced the joy of salvation. You see, those who have experienced the joy of salvation, who've tasted the sweetness of freedom, it changes you. It doesn't leave you the same. It changes our decisions. It changes our emotions. It changes our ambitions. It changes our life. That is what the gospel does. That is what salvation does. And if you haven't experienced that, you haven't experienced the gospel. This morning, we're, we're really going to focus on what salvation produces. What is the fruit of salvation in a Christian's life? We'll look at, we'll look at three different aspects, but I believe they're important. My main point this morning is this. We are to be a people who gratefully and courageously tell the nations what God has done. We are to be a people who gratefully and courageously tell the nations what God has done. So hopefully you've made your way to the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. Yes, we're taking a week away from the book of Luke, but I believe the Lord has a good word in store for us this morning. The book of Isaiah, I know it's, it's tough to hop into such a weighty, complicated book. I, I, I acknowledge that this morning. I acknowledge that I don't have time to give the depth of context of what's going on here, but Isaiah is known by many really as the first gospel. It was, uh, it was written to the Israelites, and in it, the Lord tells his people through the prophet Isaiah messages of judgment and messages of salvation. Judgment for those walking against the Lord, but God's future promise to bring salvation to his people. And we get to chapter 12 here as God speaks to his people Israel and he gives them a song that they will sing once they experience the salvation that God provides. And this is a salvation this is a song of salvation that all who are in Christ Jesus it really applies to. So I really want us to to look at this portion of scripture this morning and and just experience the joy of salvation for one moment this morning. Just to gaze upon what it looks like. What does God have in mind when we consider the joy of our salvation? So please follow along in Isaiah 12. We'll go through the whole passage. Isaiah 12, 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, 
Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. What does salvation produce? What does the gospel do in us? What, does, what, what, should, what is the fruit of our salvation? Let's talk about that this morning. First, salvation produces gratitude. Salvation produces gratitude. We see this in, in, in verse 1. You, say, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you. I will give thanks to you. The most natural response to salvation is gratitude. Plain and simple is gratitude. Consider this, this, this week. Just think back to this week, think back to these past few days, maybe this morning. Consider all that you have longed for. Consider all of it. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. What have I longed for this week? All those things that are good. Maybe they're ministry ambitions. Their family, maybe their child, maybe their relationship, I don't know. Good, good things, maybe a job promotion. Consider the bad things you've desired, the sinful things, the selfish things, the, the, the self-motivating things, the, 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 the self-glorifying things. Consider all of it. Consider all of the, all of the things that, that made you excited and jump for joy. You know what I'm talking about? You, I mean, you know what I'm talking. Elena, Elena gets it. Joseph and I last week we, we we got to go to a baseball game together. I'm not trying to put his business out there in the streets, but 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 when, when the Braves won the NLCS and they and they made their way to the World Series, I was celebrating with Joseph, and we were like jumping and we were high fiving and we were like screaming like little girls. And you know, I'm not trying. Hey, y'all don't make fun of him, guys. I'm just saying, like, we were together. We had you know, it was it was awesome. We were jumping, we were screaming, we were getting excited. I mean, literally jumping for joy over a baseball game. Like grown men coming together with a ball and a stick, coming together and jumping for joy. Same thing happened in my house last night, doing the same thing. And, 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 and Lord willing, tonight we will do the same thing. But when was the last time you were genuinely, genuinely, when was the last time you were gen genuinely grateful for your salvation, Christian? I know, it's a, I know it's a thought that we can just kind of blow by. I want to ask that this morning. When was the last time that, that your salvation brought a smile to your face? When's the last time that your salvation brought tears to your eyes? Yes, we can, we can come together in a place like this and, and we, can si we can sing, Amazing Grace! Oh, how sweet the sound! It saved a wretch like me. We can proclaim the words. I'm not, I'm not asking when's the last time you proclaimed amazing grace. I'm asking when was the last time you felt deep in your soul, deep in your heart, in your innermost being, how amazing that grace is. It's not something you can fabricate. Something, something you can just conjure up within yourself. But when is the last time you felt incredibly grateful for your salvation? 
Oh, how quickly we can just move on, can't we? It's like, it's like you know, if you, if you have children, you know what Christmas morning is like. You know what I mean? Like you go Christmas morning and Christmas morning is great. You've got kids. Christmas morning is great. You know, you come down. The kids are so stoked. They come downstairs. They tear open the presents. Like you're the best dad in the whole entire world. And all oh, this is fun. It's exciting. It's the best day. Family, food. You know, you put them to bed that night. Everyone's just, it's just good. We all, the parents just hit the, their heads hit the pillow because they're so tired. It's a long day. They wake up the next morning and what happens? I'm bored. There's nothing to do. They're fighting. They're arguing. They're bickering. It's just, just a total lack of gratitude. An amazing day, amazing gifts, amazing time, good, great. It's all of these things. Next day, so how quickly it just wears off because we are a people that just lack gratitude. At our core, we, we are ungrateful. We're so ungrateful. We lack gratitude just in all areas of life. But especially if we're honest with our salvation, I mean, the greatest gift in the entire world that we are saved from our sin for an eternity of glory. And we're just like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, I'm not dissing it. It's, it's nice. I mean, I, I appreciate the gift, but you know, I mean, like, I still got bills to pay. I appreciate the gift, but I, but I still got to make these relationships, right? I mean, I, I appreciate it, but like, but, but kind of, God, what have you done for me lately? Why do we struggle to demonstrate gratitude? Often because we feel entitled. For honest, we think that we are entitled to God's grace. We think we are entitled to God's forgiveness. We think that we're good people. We can look at, we can look at the news. We can look at social media. We, we can look all around the world and we can say, I'm not as bad as them. I deserve God's grace. I don't drink. I don't cuss. I go to Christian school. I don't date. I don't fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I vote this way. I vote that way. If we're honest, we often feel entitled. We feel entitled to God's grace. Or maybe when we don't demonstrate gratitude for something, maybe it's because we don't count the cost of the gift. Maybe we just don't understand exactly what Christ did for us. Left glory, put on flesh, dwelt among us, and took the wrath that we deserved. He didn't take some generic wrath. It wasn't just generic. I'm just going to, God's going to pour uh, just a, a, a you know, an unspecified amount of wrath upon Christ and whoever should partake of it, that's fine. No, dear friend, if you are in Christ, Christ bore your wrath that you deserve. God's wrath that you deserve. It was your wrath. It was your sin that he took on. You deserved it. You personally. Yes, you and mine. It was great. It was a great cost that Christ paid that we were not entitled to. Church, we must grasp the weight of our sin and the glory of the cross. Oh, may that, may that thought and that, that reality be ever on our eyes and on our minds and on our, our hearts. Oh, the weight of our sin, but the glory of the cross. In Isaiah 12 here, it says, I will give thanks to you, for you were angry with me. You were angry with me. Oh, sometimes it would do us good to understand that God is angry because of sin. But God's not, hear this, hear this this morning, because we all could say amen. God's angry because of sin. 
But here's what I want you to truly grasp and truly understand this morning. It's not just that God is angry because of sin. God is angry at sinners. And I refuse, I refuse to like soften that. I'm not softening that. God is angry at sinners. Here's what, here's what the psalmist says. Psalm 11, 4 through 7, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But listen, listen. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 5, 4 through 5 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God doesn't just hate sin. God hates the sinners that sin. Amen. And God's anger is not this uncontrolled anger. It's not like our anger. See, our anger is uncontrolled. We always talk about righteous anger. And I don't know if I've ever experienced righteous anger in my entire life. I'm too faulty and frail. But God is, God's anger is good. And God's anger is controlled. God's anger is pure. God's anger is holy. God's anger is mighty. And he will pour out his pure hot wrath on every single sinner who does not come to him in repentance. Oh, we... We minimize the anger of God, don't we? We minimize it. We, we like to brush it to the side. Even right now, I know there's some of you, Brian, you're laying it on too thick. I mean, I, I, I know the Bible says God hates sinners. But that can't possibly mean what you say it means. Because all I know is nice Jesus. You know, just nice Jesus. The, the biggest thing that I can tell you about Jesus is he's so nice. Now let me just tell you about my buddy Jesus. He's nice, man. He's, he's good. I mean, you would love him if, if, you, if you knew him. I know the Pharisees didn't like him. I know the crowds really didn't love him. But I think he's nice. I think he's a great guy. It's like we're trying to set like, Jesus up on a date or something. Like you just wanna, He's just nice, man. He's a nice guy. We come to, to, to God's word, though, and we see that, that just how holy God is and how much he, he hates sin. I, it's, it, it, but we minimize the anger of God. It's interesting when I was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks. I, I was in a, a, a very small gift shop, and it was right by the Washington Monument, and I, and, and I, and I walked right in, looked around. I was like, oh, this is cool. Not a lot of gift shops are open because of COVID. This one was. I walk around and I, and, I, and I find a book. The, the book was entitled "History's Greatest Speeches." It's like, huh? I, I looked at it and I was like, I, I was just wondered what they would consider history's greatest speeches. And so, you know, you, 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 I flipped through it, and of course, you see the Gettysburg Address. You get, you know, um, the Martin Luther King. I have, I have a dream speech. Um, you know. Give me liberty or give me death. All these speeches, the basic ones. And I scroll down and, and I read, sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> like, one of these things is not like the other. 
I mean, to, to, to put this famous sermon of, of, of Jonathan Edwards in, in this book, something happened here. Something happened to somehow equate this speech with the rest of this stuff. You're missing a point here. See, Jonathan Edwards is serious. Let me, let me, read, let me read this to you. We're not talking about a nation here. We're not talking about politics here. Something far more weighty, far more urgent, far more important. He writes this to unbelievers. Consider this. You that are here present, that remain in an unregenerate state, that God will execute the fierceness of his anger, implies he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportioned to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion upon you. He will not forbear the executions of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy nor will God then at all stay his rough wind. He will have no regard to your welfare, nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much. In any other sense than only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld because it's, too, because it's so hard for you to bear. According to Ezekiel 8, he says, Therefore will I also deal in fury. My eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not bear them. Now God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy, but when once the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and dolorous cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away of God as to any regard to your welfare. God will have no other use to put you to but only to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, and there will be no other use of this vessel but only to be filled full of wrath. God will be so far from pitying you when you cry to him that tis said he will only laugh and mock according to Proverbs 1.25. Oh, how awful are the words of Isaiah 63, which are the words of the great God. I will tread them in mine anger and will trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. It is perhaps impossible to conceive of words that carry in them greater manifestations of these three things, contempt and hatred and fierceness of indignation. If you cry to God to pity you, he will be so far from pitying you in your doleful case or strewing you the least regard or favor that instead of that, he'll only tread you underfoot. And though he will know that you can't bear the weight of omnipotence treading upon you, yet he won't regard that. But he will crush you under his feet without mercy. He'll crush out your blood and make it fly. And it shall be sprinkled on his garments so as to stain all his raiment. He will not only hate you, but he will have you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down as the mire of the streets. History's greatest speeches. Do you understand, friend, the hatred that God has for sin? And unrepentant sinners. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's so terrible. Oh, and dear friends, hear me, hear me. If you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you stand 
to face God's wrath. What I just read is true of you, and that is where you are headed unless you trust in Christ. Unless you gaze upon Christ and and what he did on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, taking God's wrath on behalf of us, being crucified, put to death, put in the grave, but on the third day, rising to defeat sin once and for all, that those who trust in him may have life, may have salvation, may experience the mercy of God. Dear friends, you will see God's wrath, but he stands to give you mercy if you would call out to him today. Do not delay. Do not delay. Do not delay. Today, today can be the day of salvation. Do not wait. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another hour. Do not wait another minute. Do not wait for another season of life. Trust in Christ today. It is urgent, and I plead with you. But those of us in Christ, while we understand the anger of God, we understand something far greater. And that is the mercy of God. Oh, the mercy of God. Oh, the great mercy of God. Because it reads here in Isaiah 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry at me, your anger turned away. It turned away. This, this, what I just read, gone. It's gone. Like, if you're in Christ, we're not seeing that. God's anger and God's wrath was all put on Christ at the cross for those of us in Christ Jesus. His anger is turned away from us. There is no condemnation at all. At all. Not one iota of condemnation do we, do we face. Not one ounce of guilt will we have to pay for. Because when we are in Christ, it is finished. It is done. It is done. And he did this, why? Not so to give us a guilt trip. Not to say, oh, you owe me something. Not, not works righteousness. You got to go to church a certain amount. You got to pray a certain amount. You got to go a certain amount. No. His anger turned away so he could comfort us. Christian, do you realize that, that in, this, in this life, I, I, I think the prosperity gospel is from the pit of hell. But God's desire for you is comfort. Amen. Now, now, not the kind of comfort you might think of. Not comfortable with your money, not comfortable with your job, not comfortable circumstances. I'm talking about true comfort. Comfort in knowing that you are safe from the wrath of God. Comfort in knowing that you are a child of God. Comfort. True comfort. No condemnation. Real comfort. Oh, and friends, hear, hear what the word of Isaiah says. He says, you will say in that day. Not you might say in that day, not you should say in that day, but you will say in that day, I give thanks to you. So let me go back, friends. Consider this week. Consider your pursuits. Consider your longings. Consider your passions. Consider the things you desired, both good and bad. The things that made you excited and jumped for joy. Where did your salvation come in that list? Did it make the list at all? Did it make the list at all? Maybe it wasn't first, second, third, fourth. Maybe it wasn't even thought about. We like the psalmist of David in in Psalm 51. If that isn't our cry, if that isn't our joy, if that isn't our pursuit, if that isn't our desire, if that isn't our emotion, may we pray like David in Psalm 51. Oh God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do what you must do, God, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
Oh God, I, I want to feel just gratitude and love and excitement and joy for what you've done. I want to experience it. Like, oh, like the day that we first came to Christ. The passion and the joy and the zeal and the authenticity, knowing that we are free from our sins. Lord, restore that to me. But we know in that moment in Psalm 51, that's Psalm 51 verse 12, but we, in Psalm 51 verses 1 through 11, what David's doing, he's, he's confessing his sin and he's repenting of his sin and it's always our sin. It is always our sin that keeps us from experiencing the joy of salvation. Oh, maybe this morning the Lord is convicting your heart of sin that you have yet to repent of, Christian. Confess the sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, let your prayer be restored to me, the joy of salvation. And he will do it. That is a prayer God will answer. He will do it. Look to Christ and trust in him. Next, salvation produces confidence. Salvation produces confidence. Verse 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. We must understand, church, that God himself is our salvation. That he became our salvation. God didn't just make a road for us to be saved. God didn't give us a list of things that, that we need to do in order to be saved. He didn't say, here's a checklist, and if, and if you complete this checklist, you're saved. God instead fully accomplished our salvation for us. He did it. He did it. I said, well, Brian, what about the law? Well, Galatians 3, 10, 13. Uh, Galatians 10, 3, 10 through 13 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Does that mean? You try to obey God? You think, you, do, you think you're gonna, do you think you're gonna escape the wrath of God by your behavior? Do you think you're gonna somehow escape the wrath of God and experience salvation because, because you're going to try and pursue God on your own terms? By being a good person, by saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, or I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. Well, according to the, to the word of God, all who rely on their own efforts, all who rely on obedience to the law are cursed. You're cursed. You're cursed. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God says, if, if, you, if, you, if you violate one law, hate your brother, lust in your heart, have another God other than God, whether it be your job or your money, one, just one, you are guilty of all of it and you stand condemned before God and there's nothing you can do about it. All of it. But verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ came, and Christ actually did. The only one, the only man, the only one who ever came and obeyed the law. He fulfilled all of God's righteous decrees, all of God's righteous rules and laws, all of them, every single one. But yet in that moment, he, they, they put him on a cross and he bore the weight of our sin. He bore the curse because we are guilty of the law. We're all guilty of God's law. Christ on the cross, he came and he, and he took the punishment. He became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what I'm saying here? God didn't just provide salvation. He didn't just communicate a way for salvation. God himself put on flesh and did what we couldn't do 
And God himself in his very person became our salvation. Our salvation isn't a philosophy. Our salvation isn't a a path. Our salvation isn't works. Our salvation is a person named Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity again, left heaven, dwelt among us, put on flesh, and earned salvation for us. It is not up to you. It's not up to your work. It's not up to your efforts. In John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed up his head and he gave up his spirit. Salvation earned for all those who would trust in Christ. God is our salvation. What is the response? I will trust and not be afraid. Therefore, a second response to salvation is confidence. Confidence. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Confidence is is a lack of fear based on a confidence in God. A lack of fear based on a confidence in God. A lack of fear of what? A lack of fear of what? You won't fear what? Anything. You understand that? That the gospel produces something in us that we need not fear anything. Nothing. What what, what do you fear this morning? Do, do, Do you fear losing your salvation? Is that what you fear? Maybe. I've been there, but I'm reminded in John 6, 37 that says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, friends, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But it's not up to you. It's up to God who will never cast you out. Maybe you fear loneliness. And you can remember in Matthew 28, 20, that tells us, I am with you always to the end of the age. Maybe, maybe you fear shame, just, just shame, deep shame for your sin, deep shame for things you've done, things you've thought. Remember Romans 8, 1 through 2 that reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Maybe you fear persecution. I, 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 trust, in, I trust in Christ, but I, I fear persecution. Well, remember 2 Timothy 1, 12 that says, uh, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Oh, maybe, friend, maybe you fear death. And if you are in Christ, you can remember 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 that reads, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our strength in our song. God is our strength in our song. Do you, do you hear all these verses? Do you notice what I, all these verses that I just read? Where's the hope? Where's the hope? Where's the strength found? Where's the confidence found? In the work of God. In the character of God. Why can we not fear death? Because Christ defeated death. Why can we never experience lonely? Because Christ promised that he would never leave us. Why can we not feel shame? Because Christ gave us a reason to not feel shame. Why can we never lose our salvation? Because God himself will keep us. God is our strength. Do you understand this, church? It's not up to you. As you persevere, and I believe in the perseverance of the saints that, that we will all, that we will all 
trust in Christ and we will ultimately follow Christ until the day that we die and become more and more like Christ. But that's not because I'm so good or because you're so good, but it's because God will accomplish what God said he would accomplish. God is our strength. He's the only strength we have. He's the only hope we have. It's not up to you and your efforts. It's not up to you and your works. Oh, when you have condemnation, when you have guilt, you know why? It's because you are so focused on your works. You're so focused on yourself. You're so focused on your efforts. Focus on the character of God. Focus on his work. Focus on his promises. Oh, and as you do, you will become so confident to walk in the spirit and you will obey and you will desire goodness and holiness. You will, church. You will. The gospel produces Confidence. Today, you might be struggling and putting your hope in all the things that will never give you hope and confidence. Maybe your money, maybe your family, maybe your education, maybe your reputation, whatever that is. Dear friends, look to the cross and look to scripture and see that you cannot find hope in any of those things. You can only find hope in God alone. He is our confidence. The gospel produces gratitude. The gospel produces confidence. Third point. Salvation also produces proclamation. Salvation produces proclamation. In verse 3, we find that God's people drink water from the wells of salvation. They drink water from the wells of salvation. In response, God's people, they go out and they proclaim what God has done. They drink and then they go and tell. And this kind of reminds me a bit of, of John chapter 4. You can write that down in your notes. You don't have to turn there, but, but in John chapter 4, we, we know this story of, of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Jesus meets her. He goes out of his ways to, to, to find his way to this well. And God in his sovereignty, I know, is to encounter this woman. And, and Jesus meets this woman at the well. And he tells her, Everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. I'm sorry. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus, in this, in this moment, he encounters a, a woman who's, who's just eyeball deep in sexual immorality, eyeball deep in sin, running from God, running away from God. She stands condemned before God, and she feels guilty. In, in this moment, we, we know that for, for her to, to leave her house and to, and to go to this well, it would have meant it was to a very public place. She, she would have to leave her place of hiding, leave her isolation, leave her, 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 her sinful home, and, and to walk outside before the public, before, so everybody could see her. So there, there, there's, that, there's that woman again. There's that dangerous, sinful woman again. There she is. Oh, you heard what she did? You know who she's living with? There she is again. She, and she would experience the shame. She would just keep her eyes focused on the well. So there she finds in this moment just her and, and, and Jesus. Jesus offers her this, this water to which she, she would drink of it and to always be satisfied. And she asked for this water. And, and essentially what she's doing there for this water that never satisfied for her, never to have to go to the well again, never to have to experience the shame of, of walking from her home to this well in this, in this public place. She's basically saying, Give me this water so that you can take away my shame. And in that moment, Jesus exposes her sin. He tells her everything that she's ever done, she says. He deals with it, but he also gives her grace. He reveals to her that he is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to deal with sin once and for all and to offer her grace. Oh, what an amazing, amazing passage. What's her response? In, in John 4, 28 through 30, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. She experiences God's grace. She sees Christ for who he is. What's her first response? 
pure amazement and goes and tells everybody she knows. That's natural. This is natural. And what happens in, in 439 through 42? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Revival broke out because a woman a very sinful woman, a very sexually immoral woman. Oh, a woman full of shame, full of guilt, full of condemnation. She drank of the water that Jesus provides, that water being Jesus himself. That moment, the weight was lifted, the chains fell off, and there she is free. And what's the first thing she does. She goes and tells. She goes. Jesus didn't even tell her to. Do you get this? She realized her greatest need in all of the universe was met in that moment. That being her condemnation being erased and being paid for. And as her greatest need was met, she goes and tells those closest to her the greatest news in all of the world. It was just natural. It was natural. The most natural thing we do as people is talk about what we love and what we're awed by. That's so natural. I mean, how often, I, I hate to bring up the example again, over the past two weeks, you come up to me, what are we talking about? The Braves! Holy smokes, like, yeah, yeah, it's awesome, exciting. You know, last week we wore our jerseys because like nobody told me to do that. It wasn't a rule. The elders didn't say, Brian, can you please do this this morning? I didn't know. Because I'm passionate about it. And, 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 I, and I love it. So I do it. Notice the response here. Back in Isaiah 12. In Isaiah 12, they, 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 they go and they, they make known his deeds among the peoples and proclaim that his name is exalted. They sing praises to the Lord. They sing. You know, like what we're doing here this morning as we sing, it's, it's a response to what God has done. We don't just come here for giggles. This isn't just some like club. This isn't a glee club. We're not coming here to make pretty music. We're coming to sing loud because God is good. We do. No, don't tell me you're going to sit here and not sing and just tell me that you think God's good. I, I just don't believe it. I'm sorry. Sing because he's worthy. I mean, do we not just sing that? Is he worthy? He is. He is. He is worthy to be sung to and sung about. It's just a shout. You're like, man, Brian, you shout too much. But we're called to shout. We're called to get excited. There's, we shout about things all the time. Maybe we, we shout when our kids are upset, when, when your kids make us upset. We, we shout when, when, when Georgia scores a touchdown. I don't, but y'all do. I mean, think about it. You go to Sanford Stadium. You've seen it. How many, how many does it hold, Cameron? 90,000? Somewhere, roughly. Number one team in the country. You see it. It happens. Georgia scores another touchdown. And I don't care if they are up 56 to nothing. They score another touchdown. It's like, da, 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 da. I mean, the whole place is going there. The band's not stopping and the band's not playing any softer. Never at any point in the Georgia football game does this, does, does, uh, is a touchdown scored and they're just sitting there. It's never silent. It's never, ever silent. 
They're like, victory, 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 victory. Yeah, strength and song, strength and song. The most natural thing that we do as people when we're excited is proclaim as loud as we possibly can. That's natural. John Piper has said this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. What he means by that is that we go and we tell and we proclaim and we make disciples of all nations because worship doesn't exist for Christ in those areas. So therefore we go in hopes that worship would occur. But more importantly, I know you know that quote. It's been spoken from this from this pulpit many times by a variety of us. This is more important than that, though. Because that quote by itself is insufficient. So I went to go look it up. And I was so grateful for what Piper said right after this, because I was like, amen. Because while I agree with that, I agree more with what he says after that. He says, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. If I can paraphrase, missions exist because worship doesn't, but missions exist because worship does. We go because we can't help but go. We go because we desire to go. We go because of what he has done and what he has accomplished. It's funny. We tell our kids, many of us in this church, as we discipline them, Maybe you say something to this, you know, we, we discipline our kids and then we talk through it and we, we remind them that, that, that obedience is first time all the way with a happy heart. Maybe that's what you say, that's what, maybe you don't, that's what we say. We, we remind our kids that, that obedience is first time all the way with a happy heart. It's not obedience if, if, it's, if it's done the second or third time. It's not obedience if it's done begrudgingly. I'm going to go take out the trash and I'm just going to stop my feet. It's the wrong heart. The Bible tells us that obedience is, is done first time all the way with a happy heart. It's easy for us to, 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 to tell that to our kids. But listen here, adults. Obedience is first time all the way with a happy heart. God isn't calling us to a mission, kicking and screaming. He's not, he's not calling us to the mission field, kicking and screaming. Nor is God calling us to endless ministry programs. God isn't necessarily calling us to quit our jobs for the sake of the gospel. But for those that have tasted the sweetness of the gospel, This is just who we are. This is who we are. We are grateful people. We are confident people. And we are people that proclaim. We can't help but proclaim. We can't help but have joy. We can't help but have gratitude in light of what Christ has done. And if we're not excited about making disciples of our community and all nations, hear me, church, I'm almost done. If we're not excited about making disciples of our community and all nations, something is really, really wrong. if we're not passionate about gathering together with God's saints for the proclamation of his word and singing of songs, then something is really, really wrong. 
Maybe that's you. No desire for fellowship. No desire for proclamation. No desire to make disciples. May you gaze upon Christ and what he has accomplished for you in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. May, church, we repent of our sin, of our apathy, of our lack of love for the Lord, of our lack of fear for the Lord, of our lack of love for our neighbors. May we repent of our idolatry as we pursue everything else that this world has to offer with reckless abandon. Oh, may we be a people that see the call to go as a result of the confidence that God provides and the joy that God provides. May may we see the call, and if we don't cherish it, may we repent. May we not leave here until we get it. May we pray indeed that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation, church, and produce a people who gratefully and courageously tell the nations what God has done.